Well, may the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We continue our series on the Gospel of John this morning. And our sermon text for today will be John 1, 35 to 51. And if you are able, I invite you to please stand and listen to God's holy word. The next day, again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. Mission Impossible is one of my favorite series of action movies. I recommend Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation for their ridiculously entertaining storyline. On the surface, the stories of these movies are all different, but at the core, they're all the same. Ethan Hunt and a few friends on his IMF team are called upon to undertake these impossible missions and go to exotic places at personal risk with tremendous cost against all odds, with little to no sleep. And they do all of this to save the world again and again and again. 
Ethan is always the hero at the center of the story who falls down and rises up, who descends and ascends, who dies and rises, so to speak, in his efforts to fulfill this mission impossible. It's all very entertaining, and none of it is even close to true. But I suspect that many people like these kinds of stories because they wish the stories were true. They wish they lived in a world where things like that actually happened and they could rely on heroes like Ethan Hunt. In my case, I enjoy these stories because they remind me of a story that we all know to be true, that we believe to be true, and that is the story of Jesus Christ. Last week we met Agnes Day. We heard the true story of Agnes Day. The story of the God-man who descends to the earth and then ascends back to heaven. Who lays down his life for his people and takes it up again. Who in fact dies and rises in order to fulfill his mission to save the world. Agnes Day is the Lamb of God who travels into exile at personal risk against tremendous odds with deep regard for all the costs. And he does it all to take away the sin of the world. Well, today we meet Agnes Day, the Lamb of God, again. And we learn more about him. But this time the focus is on his mission and on his vision for the life of the world. So today we're going to focus on three things in this story that will center our hearts and minds on the Lamb of God. We're going to look at His mission, our confession, and then His vision. So three things, mission, confession, and vision. These are the three threads that we're going to see that are woven through the story, hold the story together, and these are the threads of the story that, in fact, shape our life. So let's look at the mission of the Lamb of God. The story unfolds sort of like a play day. If you can remember back to elementary school, maybe you had play days in your school. We had play days. And we would spend the day doing all kinds of games out in the field. Maybe you're uh, from a generation that called them field days. So you have in this story a play day. First we have a relay race with John the Baptist who hands the baton off to Jesus. And then we have Jesus and the disciples playing a game of hide and seek. Did you hear how many times the word found was in the story? They're playing a game of hide and seek. Some are seeking Jesus and they find Him and then Jesus is seeking others and He finds them and then they go and find their family and their friends. And it all seems very playful and very lighthearted and joyful, and it is, and yet it's also very serious because these are life and death issues at stake. So as God came seeking Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, so now we see Jesus going out and seeking men in Galilee. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is on mission to seek and save the lost. And no sooner is He introduced as the Savior of the world than He goes about rescuing people. He goes out on mission to save. When He sees two men following Him, He asks them, What do you seek? 
Now I want to pause and consider this question because it is a valid question for anyone who is curious or interested in Jesus. But it is imperative that we understand Jesus' actual question. In other words, we need to hear what Jesus is asking and not what we think He's asking. Jesus was not saying to them, what do you want? As if he were a genie who just popped out of a lamp to grant them three wishes. He's saying, what do you seek? What are you looking for? Now, you know as well as I do that not all who seek after Jesus seek after him for the right reasons. Some people are just looking for their best life now. Others are looking for health and wealth. And still others are just looking for wise words. Others are seeking voter support. Some are looking for a positive influence on their kids. Others are just looking for some kind of miracle. In other words, there are a lot of people in our world who just want Jesus for what they think they can get out of Him. They seek His blessings and His benefits, but they're not really seeking Him. You understand the difference? So when Jesus says to these guys, what do you seek? He wants to know, in fact, what they are looking for. Now here's why it matters. Here's why it makes a difference. The law and the prophets consistently and repeatedly called the people of God to seek the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 4 says, Seek the Lord your God even from exile and captivity, and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Isaiah the prophet said, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near, for He will abundantly pardon. And Jeremiah the prophet said, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So the two men who left John the Baptist to follow Jesus were seeking Jesus. And they wanted to see for themselves if Jesus really and truly was the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. If He really was the Savior and the King as the prophet had said. And so they did exactly what the law and the prophets had taught them to do. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ simply for who He is. Well, let me ask you where you are. What are you seeking today? And what are you seeking right here, right now? I want to be honest with you that if you came here seeking anything other than Jesus, you're going to be woefully disappointed. <laughs> you probably came to the wrong place looking for the wrong thing. But if you are seeking Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, you're seeking what is true and good and beautiful. And I want to encourage you on your search. I even want to go with you on that journey if you'd like me to. Because I believe that you will find the one you're looking for. John Calvin says this, on commenting on this text. When Jesus says, what do you seek? John Calvin said, This kind and gracious invitation, which was once made to two persons, now belongs to all. 
So we ought not fear that Christ will withdraw uh, from us or refuse easy access to us, provided that he sees us desirous to come to him. But on the contrary, he will stretch out his hand to assist our endeavors. And how will he not meet those who come to him, who seeks at a distance those who are wandering and astray, that he may bring them back to the right road? If you are seeking the Lord with all your heart, you will definitely find him. But how? In this story, we see these ordinary guys like Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They come to Christ, and then given our background, given our experience here in the Bible Belt, we imagine that they found Jesus because they were just willing seekers who just decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Unlike some of the other men at that time who were too foolish to do that, men like the priests and the Pharisees. Well, on the surface, it looks like they made the first move, like they initiated a relationship with Jesus, and that He simply responded to their desire and efforts. But do you know that's not the case at all? Looks can be deceiving. I want to remind you of the context that God is the one who sent His Word through John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord. And you see in this story that His Word did not return empty, but accomplished the purpose for which He sent it. John bore witness to the light, and those men who heard John saw the light in Christ shining in the darkness. Later on in John's Gospel, we'll learn how this works, but let me give you a hint or a glimpse of that now. Later on in John's Gospel, we see Jesus saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And we see later that these men only chose Christ because He first chose them. So the real reasons, the real reasons all those men, Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, came to Jesus is because the Father drew them to Jesus and Jesus chose them for Himself and the Spirit moved upon them by the word of truth. And that is what turned them to Christ. And I want you to know the same is true of you and of me. If you are seeking God, then it is because He first sought you. And if we find God, it is because He first found us. And if I have decided to follow Jesus, it is because He first decided to draw me close to Himself. And the reason that matters is because we want to see that all the glory and the praise and the honor belongs to the Lord, for salvation is from the Lord. And I believe that these men that we read about in the story today would echo that by saying, Amen. The mission of the Lamb of God was to seek and save sinners. And in this story, we see Him seeking and finding and taking sinners to Himself. These are the only kinds of people He reaches out to in the story. And we see His followers doing the same kinds of things for their family and friends in this story. So at this point, I want to remind you that the Lamb's mission is also our mission, or maybe I should say our mission is also the Lamb's mission. 
We are called and expected to participate in the mission of the Lamb. And that is to tell other people about Jesus. To take them to someone who can tell them about Jesus. To show them the way. God has been gracious and merciful to you. But what about your family and friends? I want you to think about who you know that still needs to come and see who Jesus is. Who have you neglected to tell? Who are you praying that God will draw to Jesus? And are you asking God to use you in the process? Now, if you're afraid of saying the wrong things, if that's what's holding you back, then I want to encourage you to risk saying it anyway. I want you to risk saying it anyway. And I get encouragement to tell you that from this story. If you read it carefully enough, you'll see that Andrew and Philip did not get every detail about Jesus right. They were really close. They were in the ballpark, but they missed a few things. And yet God still used their testimony to reach Peter and Nathaniel. So to everyone who feels that their speech and their words and their testimony about Jesus just simply are not adequate, find some encouragement from this renowned missionary theologian, Leslie Newbigin, who offers these encouraging words to us today. He says in his book, The Light Has Come, Witness may be defective. Indeed, human witness to Jesus will always be defective. For how can any human word, however orthodox, convey, convey the full reality of Him through whom all things were made? But if it is witness to Jesus, then it is not without fruit. The promise that the Word of God will not return empty is valid. For in fact, it is God Himself who calls disciples to Jesus as a gift. So if all else fails... Just tell your family and friends to come and see Jesus for themselves. If you get stumped on a question or a criticism, say, I don't know, come, come and see. That's what Jesus said and that's what His disciples said after Him. In this story, in this story, we see people telling their family and friends about Jesus and we see Jesus taking care of all the rest. And that brings us to the next thread of our story. Confession. Confession. In this story, when people heard the good news about Jesus, they confessed. They confessed the truth about Him sooner or later. John the Baptist confessed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew and John confessed that Jesus was the teacher and the Christ. Philip confessed that Jesus was the one about whom Moses and the prophets spoke, that He was the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Nathaniel confessed that Jesus was his teacher and the Son of God and the King of Israel. All of these were public confessions of faith. They were not private confessions of faith. They were public confessions of faith. Now, I realize that here in post-Christian America, we are not supposed to talk openly and publicly about things like politics, religion, and sometimes sports. 
We're supposed to keep all of these things secret and keep them silent, keep them to ourselves. But I want to remind you of something that G.I. Williamson said. This is in his commentary or study guide on the Shorter Catechism. He said, Religious neutrality is simply impossible. If we do not profess Jesus Christ as the one true God, then by not doing so, we show that we refuse His claims. If we profess nothing verbally, in other words, we profess much still because actions speak as loud at least as words. The point is this. A public mission requires a public confession. If we start talking about Jesus publicly outside of our circle, I mean outside of our church community, and we start telling our family and friends about Jesus, and we start taking them to Jesus, then eventually they will come and see that Jesus is the Word made flesh. And perhaps some, perhaps even many, will confess that Jesus is the Son of God who came full of grace and truth, that He is the Savior who came to take away their sins. And when they do so, when they make this public confession of faith, they will be saved. Now, since we're talking about confession, I want to make a confession of my own. And this is more of a confession of weakness, not a confession of faith, but a confession of weakness and failure on my part regarding this point. Over the course of my ministry, I've struggled to stay on gospel mission for a variety of reasons. And I, I've been on and off of gospel mission. I guess it depends how you look at it. But I'm thinking of a very uh, narrow sense of gospel mission here in terms of engaging unbelievers and non-believers with the gospel. And so I narrowed it down. Here are three reasons that sometimes I turn into excuses to justify my action. But one is... I am an introvert, not an extrovert. It takes me longer to get to know people outside myself and engage people in conversation, especially if I don't know them very well. And that's partially true. It's a reason, but it cannot be an excuse. The second thing is, I've spent a lot of my ministry discipling, professing Christians who were not as strong and mature in the faith as they should have been or could have been if they had just applied themselves a bit more. And that takes a lot of time. And then the third thing is, over the past several years, you know this as well as I do, we've been sort of tied up with the work of congregational reformation. And uh, that's a little distracting at times. But again, it's not an excuse. These are reasons, but they can't be used as excuses to say, well, I don't have to go on gospel mission, and I don't have to be concerned about people confessing faith in Christ. Now, all these things are in some way a part of God's mission. But here's my confession. I want us to be, I want to be, and I want you to be even more missional. I want to see lost, unchurched, skeptical, not yet Christians, broken and dirty people coming straight from the world into this place. And I want to see them uh, come to know Jesus for who He really is. And I want them to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to the praise of His glory and grace. Don't you want that? And I want God to use me in the process, and I want Him to use you in the process. Don't you want that as well? 
Now, if a hairy, dirty, dirty, if a hairy desert hermit and some rowdy fishermen and a younger brother and a close friend and a shade tree philosopher can do this, then so can we. I suspect that some of you are listening to this right now and you're like, oh boy, my family and friends. They will never listen. They will scoff at this. They are set in their ways. They will be upset with me. They will make fun of me. They will not like our church. They will not understand who we are. And what is a Presbyterian anyway? Maybe you're just a bit jaded and sick and tired of hearing about all of these revivals and all of this movement and all these trends and all of that, all of those gimmicks, and you only you see them fall to dust and blow away. And so you're jaded, and I get that. But maybe back of all of that is you're just too comfortable and you don't want to be disturbed. Now, if that describes you or someone you know, like a family or fam family member or friend then I want you to know you're in good company. There's a guy in this story that I think uh, you can relate to. I certainly can. His name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel seems like an unlikely candidate to become a follower of Jesus. We don't know much about him, but what we do know about him is that he was a bit of a skeptic when it came to news about the Messiah. He has a comfortable lifestyle. We know that because he's camped out under a fig tree and the prophets tell us that that's a sign of prosperity and peace. And so he's got this comfy lifestyle. And then a friend shows up and disrupts him by talking about Jesus and the Messiah. And his initial response to his friend Philip's exciting news about Jesus is, and you have to know the Greek to get this, it's meh. <laughs> now he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now there are a lot of different theories about why he said that. One is, he's from Cana, Nazareth was a, uh, a city nearby, and they were rival cities, and so they're always picking on each other. I guess they had some high school rivalry or something. There's another possibility, and that is that he knew enough about Jewish history to know that destruction and judgment always came from the north, usually through or near Nazareth. It's also possible that he knew the Scriptures well enough to know that the Christ would come from Bethlehem and not Nazareth, and so he's not going to let even his friend Philip pull the wool over his eyes. Either way, he's not swayed, moved, or impressed by anything his friend Philip has to say. Some of you are going to find yourself in, yourselves in Philip's shoes. You're going to be telling your friend the most exciting story and news you've ever heard in your life, and they're going to be like, whatever, dude. Totally unimpressed. Now, it's possible that Nathaniel was this sort of holy skeptic who was not shaken and stirred by sensationalized propaganda. I can relate to that. I'm not easily moved by those things myself. Maybe he was a devout thinker like some of you who's simply holding out for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help him God. Either way, he's not taking the bait on this testimony that Philip brings him. 
Leslie Nubigen talks about uh, how we deal with skeptical responses. And for those of you who are disturbed and troubled by skeptics in your life, just know that that's the world we live in. We live in an age of skepticism. And we've got to find a way to address that. So here's what Nubigen says. Intelligent skepticism is not condemned, for it is the necessary balance which preserves the distinction between genuine faith and foolish credulity. So skepticism is a legitimate starting point. But, and here's the big but, it cannot have the last word or nothing new will be learned. Philip's answer to Nathaniel's skepticism is an echo of the earlier words of Jesus, come and see. The skeptic must suspend his skepticism if he is to have the opportunity to learn. So Philip did the right thing. Instead of getting into a heated argument with his friends and getting into this shouting match and calling each other names and passing judgment, Philip just kind of steps back and says, well, come and see for yourself and leaves it at that. And that's exactly what Nathaniel did. Now Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and what's interesting is this. Even though Nathaniel was skeptical about Jesus, Jesus was not skeptical about Nathaniel. He took him as he was. He treated him with respect. He took his doubts seriously. He tackled them head on. And you might ask, well, why would Jesus go to such great lengths when everyone else just, he said, follow, and they followed. He said, come, and they came. Why would Jesus work so hard for Nathaniel? It's because he cared about him. He loved him. Just like he cares about you and your family and your friends. Jesus shows us something important in this story, so let me highlight it for you. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus shows us that the only thing that can overcome a skeptic's skepticism is not rational argument, and it's not empirical data. It is a personal encounter with the Word made flesh. You see the difference? Only that will make a skeptic willing to turn from his doubts and trust in Jesus. Only that will enable him to confess, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Just like you did, your family and friends need a personal encounter with the Word made flesh. They need to come and see Jesus for themselves. And that brings us to the third and final point. And I appreciate your patience, but this is so important for us here. This last thing. In this story, we see that the mission and confession point us to Jesus. They move us toward Jesus. Mission and confession do not exist independently. They are drawn to a glorious vision of Jesus. And it's not just any vision. It's not a vision statement. It's not a pastor's vision for the congregation. It is a vision of the Word made flesh full of grace and truth. Jesus said to His father, followers, you will see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Now Jesus told them these things because He wanted them to know that He intended to reveal His glory to them in truer and better ways. So like their forefathers, they were going to see the glory of God unveiled more and more. In the Old Testament, whenever the heavens were opened, the glory of God was revealed, sometimes in judgment for the praise of God's justice, sometimes in deliverance for the praise of His mercy. But whenever the heavens were opened, the glory of God was revealed to His people. And in the Old Testament, when the patriarchs and the prophets saw angels ascending and descending, they didn't see just one or two. They saw thousands upon thousands of them, and they knew that those angels were serving God and doing His will between heaven and earth. And it was those dreams and those visions that moved them to worship God, that moved them to go on mission with God, that moved them to serve God in the world. So likewise, when Jesus says to His followers, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, here's what He means. He means that you will see night dreams and night visions being realized in the Word made flesh. Like Nathaniel and Philip and Peter and Andrew, we too need a vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For where there is no such vision, the mission fails and confessions will fade. But this glorious vision of Jesus is that gravitational force that pulls us and draws us deeper in to Christ. It calls us farther in and farther up. Now we've already seen in the Gospel of John the glory of God revealed in the Word becoming flesh and the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And as we make our way through the Gospel of John, we are going to see His glory revealed more and more and more for the life of the world. And as we come to see the glory of God, the glory of the God-man revealed in the true and better ways, we're going to be moved to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're going to go on mission with Him. We're going to confess His name. And we're going to be shaped by this vision of His glory. Mission, confession, and vision. These are the threads woven throughout this story. And this is a story that shapes our life as a church. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing these things, you will have eternal life in His name. So will your family, so will your friends, so will your neighbors and your co-workers. But you don't have to take my word for it, nor do they. You all just have to come and see for yourself.